Greetings, and thank you for joining me for the final episode of Quite Excellent for the Year, episode number 53. We are ending in spectacular fashion as poet Jose Alavarez is joining us to close out the year. I mentioned Alavarez's book, Citizen Illegal, and his contribution to the rumpus last week. He's also been published in other literary magazines in the New York Times, received fellowships from the Poetry Foundation and others, was a co-editor on the Breakbeat Poets Volume 4 Latinx Anthology, and he co-hosts the poetry podcast, The Poetry Gods. Thank you so much for uh, helping us end the academic year. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you and to hear what your students had to say. Excellent. Uh, so last week, students had the choice of responding to one of two poems. My therapist says, make friends with your monsters and Ars Poetica. I'd like to start with my therapist says, make friends with your monsters. I first enjoyed this in Citizen Illegal in 2018, then, had the 2017 version from the Rumpus shared with me last year, and the earlier version made references to the Coyote and Roadrunner, Looney Tunes characters, which Citizen Illegal discards, along with some other changes like removed lines, reshuffled stanzas, some substituted language, such as trading Big Boy for Gordito. Before yeah. we get to the student analysis, I'm kind of curious, what made, what motivated you to make the revisions that shorten the poem so significantly from 16 to 12 stanzas? Um, that's a great question. And it's been so long since I looked at the rumpus version of the poem. I remember feeling like the heart of the poem was good, but maybe, maybe it, you know, wasn't focused enough when I was going through the manuscript. Give me one moment, because I'm actually curious. I want to pull it up to see exactly what some of the big changes were that I made. Yeah, I forgot entirely that I mentioned the Roadrunner in this first in this first go of it. And you referenced yeah, the you monsters know, as like coyotes. Yeah, so I think when I looked at it, I think what I thought in, in the process of revision was that I was kind of circling the same point again and again. And so I could maybe choose the boldest images, the images that to me made the most poetic sense, right? Not the most sense in a literal way, but the ones that kind of move me the most and kind of tighten the poem since it was almost like I was trying, the whole poem, I think the way that I first wrote it, it was trying to get to that ending stanza where you know the realization that the monsters are not quite so scary and, mm -hmm. and they're never going to stop chasing you. You know what I mean? So you, mm -hmm. you have to find a different alternative, but, I think that I, I spent some time playing with some of those different images, whether it's the Roadrunner image, the Coyote image, because I was trying to figure out exactly what was there. And then also to see if maybe there was another realization on the way to the last realization. So I think that's why the last, the last published poem, the one that's in Citizen Illegal is a little bit tighter. It discards four stanzas, like you mentioned. Um, it discards some of the imagery because I wanted to make sure that I got to the to the concluding revelation a little bit faster. Okay. Yeah. I was surprised when I when I saw this come up again because I was like, I don't I don't remember that being there. Um, and so I find myself now that I know that those differences exist, I might end up pulling that into a creative writing class next year. It's like he started here and he ended up here. How can you do this with something you're writing? Like that kind of movement. Anyway, yeah. that's all I would ask because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for yeah. I don't think anyone has ever asked me about that before. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be the first. 
so to make sure we've got the poem fresh in our mind, uh, I'd like to start with the poem itself. Of course, the, the published version from Citizen Legal. Would you mind give us, giving us a reading of that? Yeah, for sure. So this poem is called, My Therapist Says Make Friends With Your Monsters. We are gathered in truth because my therapist said it was time to stop running and I pay my therapist too much to be wrong, so I am here. My monsters look almost human in the sterile office light. My monsters say they want to be friends. I remember when we first met, me and my monsters. I remember the moment I planted each one. Each time I tried to shed a piece of myself, it grew into a monster. Take this one with the collar of belly fat, the monster called Chubby, Husky, Gordito. I climbed out of that skin as fast as I could, only to see some spirit give it legs. I ran and it never stopped chasing me, each new humiliation coming to life and following after me. After me, a long procession of sad monsters, each monster hungry to drag me back, to return me to the dirt I came from. Ashes to ashes, fat boy to fat, my monsters crowd around me. My therapist says, I can't make the monsters disappear no matter how much I pay her. All she can do is bring them into the room so I can get to know them, so I can learn their names, so I can see clearly their toothless mouths, their empty hands, their pleading eyes. Very nice. Thank you, sir. I'd like to start with some of the language choices my students started with. One said, uh, pointed out that because you're beginning with we are gathered in truce, it establishes at the very beginning of the poem, the idea of like a neutral space, despite the poem not really having a lot of neutrality in it. The student points to that as kind of an interesting choice at the very beginning. And then in terms of uh, one example of that lack of neutrality are words like chubby and gordito. A student says, these words are teasing that caused uh, Olivares to want to move on and forget that stage of his life, but those harmful words still stick. Yeah, I love that analysis. And I love how closely they're paying attention to the first line and that first choice of we are gathered in truth. When I wrote it, I was, I was thinking of the word truce and and knowing that I wanted to get to a point of truce, knowing because I wanted to end up at a truce, I couldn't begin with the truce, right? I chose a word that, that sounded familiar, right? So still carried an echo of what was coming, but was different and gave, you know, a sense of, I, I think a sense of neutrality is a way, good way to put it, a type of safe space. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that I began in the poem with neutrality because I had any intention of staying neutral. I think what I was interested in was beginning in a place that kind of acknowledges like what, what are the circumstances and, and what, you know, like the poem is titled, my therapist says, make friends with your monsters. Like what are, what's the situation that would lead a therapist to say something like that to a client, right? Like why would, why is that pertinent advice? Um, so I think I was trying to quickly familiarize the reader with like, this is why we're here. This is why we're gathered. Very nice. Um, and then you mentioned how you were eager, maybe not eager is the right word, but you wanted to get to that ending stanza in both versions of this poem. 
uh, and students had things to say about that. Uh, those closing lines. Uh, one student pointed to it says, "So I can see clearly their toothless mouths, their empty hands," and noted that this could mean that those monsters are only as harmful as you think them to be. And another said that this is showing that your monsters aren't going to harm you once you try and face those problems. Meeting your monsters is essential, and that kind of running away can kind of take over your life if you don't confront them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right on. And I think, you know, one, I mean, we should clarify that there are many types of monsters that one might face, right? I mean, so one, let me backtrack and say that that this comes from a real experience in therapy. Like my, my therapist really said this to me. And I remember it was such a moment of realization for me because, you know, I think I grew up with this idea that we had to beat our obstacles, right? That there was, you know, that not that you had to make peace with them, but that you had to overcome everything. And, and I think what I was trying to convey in the poem is what my therapist conveyed to me, which is that exactly what the student pointed out, right? Sometimes the obsession with getting away from the problems, with be transforming oneself can, can become another way of harming oneself, right? I don't wanna say that it's as harmful or anything, but it, it can become like another way to, to make ourselves suffer unnecessarily. You, I mean, I feel this way all the time when I'm procrastinating. You know, there's an email that I don't wanna write and, and I put it off for weeks and then 15 minutes later, I'm done. I'm like, why did I, why did I put that off for so long? You know, like it's just, it, sometimes it, the, the idea of something is much more scary than the actual fact of it. Oh yeah, I'm grading theoretically the end of work assignments right now. I'm familiar with the procrastination monster. Yeah. <laughs> so now I asked students because both of these poems have kind of interesting structural things happening. I actually asked them specifically to consider those aspects of both poems. And with this one, I'd like to start with some of the, the observations students had regarding your choice of capitalization here. Mm -hmm. So uh, students said that no sentence start with a capital letter, and it seems to signify that these problems are always in the background. So the lack of capitals kind of camouflage things. And then another student says that never capitalizing I, but capitalizing the monsters that they talk about. We have, you know, Chubby, Husky, Gordito. It shows the importance of recognizing, facing them. And it also tends to present the monsters as more significant almost than yourself. Yeah, I love that. You know, whenever I talk to students, capitalization is one of the things that's most interesting to me. And it, it might be worth talking a little bit longer about it. For me, you know, I think I think you can absolutely read the poem and its choices in capitalization in both those ways. For me, I was thinking of, you know, one of the traditions that is important to me in literature is the, is like, I'm thinking of poets like Lucille Clifton and Lucille Clifton always wrote her poems in lowercase letters. And part of what she said was that a lowercase I makes space for everybody to fit into that I, as opposed to like a capital I is about the person speaking it, right? Um, and so for me, it, it's like using lowercase, and I, this is something that I do in all of my poems, based, you know, without exception, it's a chance to one, pay homage to those artists and the communal spirit that 
you know, they infuse their poems with that is also very important to me. And then two, hopefully make space for the reader to also be able, you know, I don't want, when I'm writing poems, it's not, I, I don't want them to be special because I'm special. Like I don't see it that way, right? I, I think it's, what I'm trying to do is communicate something about what it means to be human. And so in that way, it's not really about me. And in fact, like some of, you know, not this poem, but some of the poems are not always a hundred percent factual, right? They, they're attempting to get at the truth, but that means sometimes having to depart from the facts. But I think it's interesting. I think it, this is because, I think I would have had a similar question if I encountered my poetry as a high school student. And it's because, you know, we get trained on grammar and we're taught that these things are immutable. And so if someone dares change some of those grammar things, even if like the sentences are still structurally correct, mm -hmm. it really draws our attention. And so I'm, I'm curious about that. And it makes me wonder if there's a way in future writing that I can play with capitalization and further kind of poke at some of those questions underneath, you know, why are we so attached to like a capital I and, and these different things? Yeah, and uh, I think if there had been exposure maybe to more of your poetry, they may have seen mm -hmm. it as a larger trend rather than specific to this poem, even if it is intentional within the yeah. poem. Another student mentions that choice of improper punctu uh, capitalization while punctuating generally grammatically. And uh, a student had an kind of an interesting read that also connected to some uh, pronoun choices, saying yeah. that the speaker does not trust their monsters, but still wants to make like a, a half-hearted attempt at doing so. So the monsters in this poem are first identified by it. Uh, and then as we try to accept them as they are, we start to identify them as them, not just an object. Not and now we're kind of working towards a kind of acceptance. Yeah, that's a good one. I I hadn't noticed that before, but I I think that is some something in the subconscious rising for sure. Yeah, that's that's a great observation. Shout out to that student. <laughs> yeah, that I well. I'm sure she will be excited. In addition to the capitalization and punctuation stuff, we're also looking at the, the kind of stanzas that are happening there. And a student says that we have 12 stanzas, all three lines each, which gives this kind of consistent presence. It almost feels uh, rehearsed. So the structure tells me that the author knew that his mantras would catch up. He would have to confront them. He knows that he can't keep running. Another student builds on that, says the author starts to accept the monsters slowly and that structural choice like those consistent tercets plays a play a role tercets by the way was my language choice we're not we're not talking about different line structures but yeah i mean i think both of those observations are on point you know the challenge of the poem is the title is the revelation right and so how do you write a poem where the surprise is given at the very beginning in the title how do you still find a way to make it surprising in some way and and so Part of what I like about the tercets is uh, maybe the students will will maybe push back on this, but like tercets have, because they have three lines, they have, to me, they feel a little bit snake-like. They, they allow, because it's an odd number, right? So it, it just, it has like a little, I'm thinking about now like isometric triangles and, you know, it just feels like a little bit like each stanza is the same length and yet there's something unbalanced about it because they are three lines. 
Um, and so I'm trying to find, you know, like I said, I'm trying as a writer, I'm trying to snake my way back towards this moment of revelation. And that's what I'm trying to figure out throughout that poem. Nice. Uh, and so related to this, the, the stanza structures is the choices to break some of these sentences. And I've been, I've been trying subtly to like get students to talk about enjambment a little bit all year long, not teaching it explicitly because this is not a freshman poetry class. It's just, we, we touch on it, but yeah. I got some this time, which I'm excited about. Uh, students said that some sentences are split between two stanzas. So there's like a metaphor that shows the speaker kind of being torn apart or these ideas being torn apart. So it's a connection to the speaker's monsters relationship and another says that the enjambment creates a feeling of despair that struggles or monsters will never quite go away and they're going to continue day after day and that might be related actually to that what the students before were saying about like the lowercase letters even though that's a stylistic choice that you make it's yeah. kind of connected to that feeling of being defeated yeah yeah i you know i i think that all of those are fair readings yeah i mean yeah it also just makes me think of like, I mean, the the particular monster in that this poem circles, right, is the monster of like body image. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me think about like how once we, once we brand ourselves with a particular word, it's hard, even, even when we know that it's no longer true about us, it's hard not to see, you know what I mean? Like I think about body dysmorphia a lot. And so maybe they're, they're I, th I think that maybe the writing is for sure has some of these tones of maybe quiet despair or like, uh, I, you know, again, I just think we, I think I, you know, I don't want to speak for a collective necessarily, but I know that I was taught that I needed to fight and, you know, maybe it's also a masculine thing, but fight some of these struggles. And the truth is that, you know, there's no winning any of these struggles, you know, like, yeah, there's no winning. And so sometimes the the thing to do is actually to surrender, you know, to 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 make peace. Uh so yeah, I, I absolutely see what those students are saying. And I and I think the enjambment is part of that for sure. Uh another student described it such as uh, especially in each time and then your break, I tried to shed a piece of myself. Uh, one student noted that this feels like you're taking, or at least the speaker is taking a deep breath or like letting out a sob in between those lines. Cause they're pretty weighty lines there. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a cool line break <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> if I may. Yeah. <laughs> yeah celebrate <laughs> yourself. I may, yeah. If I may shout myself out. So the, the first line in that enchantment is I planted each one each time uh, line break, I tried to shed a piece of myself, right? And so there's a few different ways to read that, right? Like if you ignore the period for a moment, then the sentence becomes, I planted each one each time, right? Mm -hmm. Which has like a slightly different meaning than if you add the sentence, I planted each one each time I tried to shed a piece of myself. So I think, you know, you know, in all honesty, even you know, even though this is my first book and I've been writing for a long time, I think that while writing this book, I was still trying to figure out exactly how I wanted to use line breaks. I think you know the tradition of poetry that I come from is much more narrative driven, and so I don't have the most natural instincts for where to break lines. And so some of the choices that you see throughout my book is 
I'm trying to figure it out as I'm playing with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're talking about line breaks and choices, uh, we, were t- we were talking before about some of the, the changes that you made between these. And one that I thought was interesting, in the citizen illegal version of this, you have a stanza, so give it legs, I ran and never stopped chasing me, each new humiliation coming to life and following after me. And then the next stanza begins, after me, a long procession of sad monsters. And I don't think in the rumpus you ended one stanza with after me, and then the new stanza begins with after me. And I don't have anything else to say about it except for the fact you just talked about how you're making choices about where your stanza breaks should be. And I noticed that that was kind of an interesting one where transitioning between them with the exact same language. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Hold on, give me a second to process. Because I think maybe even the line breaks. No, so the line breaks stayed the same. It's just the placement. It's still the same line break. Yeah, so in the rumpus, that that line break, that enjambment is still there. But Hmm. the change is that in Citizen Illegal, it's a line break and a stanza break. So uh, Mm. coming to life and following after me, stanza break after me a long procession i think you know part of that is i mean i like the way it ended up in citizen illegal with beginning a stanza with after me a long procession of sad i like the the line break after sad and before monsters because it leaves open the possibility that the sadness is more than just monsters you know it could be sad I, I can't think of any nouns at the moment, but it could be sad elephants is the first word for some reason that popped into my head. But I like that that space there that opens the door of possibility before the monsters come back in the next line. Um, so I like the way it ended up in the first, in, in the book, you know, and I can't remember exactly how it got to that point. I imagine that part of it is like wanting to hold on to the structure. And then with some of the other lines that got cut, from the original version that things moved up and down. And so it ended up working out in my favor in that case, I think. Now, uh, a few students I should note recognized some of this, uh, either having the same kind of anxieties, recognizing that this is a metaphorical lens with which to see a variety of different uh, anxieties and and challenges, self-perceptions, things like that. And also applied it to the kind of language that you said. So like a student mentioned that like, I've known people who are bullied because of their bodies and it's and have felt bad for them. And also uh, felt bad in part, the student says, because they didn't feel like they knew how to help. Like, especially in middle school, which is where the, these freshmen are obviously coming from, when you see people engaging in that kind of bullying, because it's words, it feels less severe or significant and, how do you place yourself in the middle of it? How do you get the agency to place yourself in the middle of it? But this poem makes a point, especially with those specific words, chubby, husky, gordito, like those things can kind of live inside us pretty easily. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, part the hard part of that is, I mean, in some ways it's a little bit easier to imagine intervening in the middle of a moment of bullying, right? But that interaction doesn't end in that moment, right? There's the the psychological aftermath of it. And so uh, I think the the poem is wrestling, you know, because to be honest, like, like I said, I wrote the poem from my own life and I 
didn't experience a ton of bullying about my body weight. You know, all of that pretty much ended at a certain point going into high school. Um, but that th just because that those sort of comments ended didn't mean that I stopped seeing myself that way, that I, you know, I kind of continued to bully myself in that way. And actually I wrote this poem, like at the moment that I was my lowest weight, like I, I was doing, like I was really taking care to eat well. Again, there's, there's a certain point where, you know, you realize like you can obsess over something that is external, but if the issue is internal, you're going to have to find a different way to reckon with that, uh, right? Like. It, at some point, I, I just realized that I could lose a whole bunch of weight. I could, you know, trim all the body fat off of my body, but I still would would pick at myself and find things to kind of get mad and be upset about. So now I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I'm I'm chubby or not, but I'm like very happy, and I and I try to be kind to myself as an alternative. I try to find other ways to reckon with myself and to. And, and to also because like we're human, right? And so it's not natural to be a perfect person, whether we're talking about body image or anything else. And so I'm trying to give myself more grace and trying to be less mean to myself is what I'm trying to say. Less mean is good, especially after a pandemic that's had us all sitting on our butts and not moving around nearly so much as we probably should have been for the last 14 months, 15 months. Right. Eternity? I can't time. recall. Yeah, every yeah. month feels like 15 months, so it's exponential <laughs> at this point. Yeah. So our second poem uh, is Ars Poetica. Uh, this poem has actually been living on a tab on my home computer since the very beginning of the school year. Our first poem that we used from you was Despechoir at the Casa Azul Restaurante Catena, uh, which students responded to back in November. Uh, but Ars Poetica almost came first. At the very beginning of the year, I had just read Dennis Smith's Homie, which is phenomenal. Um, then uh, I, knew I, I knew I wanted something from this genre beforehand, and then I read Homie, and there's this great version of it called My Poems, which I think is tremendous uh, and made my need to like have an Ars Poetica in here really urgent. But I was also confident I couldn't include a poem that has the explicit sexual references in my freshman English podcast without upsetting parents in my administration. I just couldn't get away with it. Uh, so I started hunting for other poems that would scratch that itch that, that talks about like the, the landscape and weapon and canvas that poetry can be. And so I found your Ars Poetica. I loved it, but I also wasn't sure that students were quite ready for a prose poem yet. It was like the third or fourth week of doing these kind of responses. And I think I would have broken their brains a little bit that early. I ended up using a Charles Bukowski's Defining the Magic, if, you've, if you're familiar. Um, and so th this has lived on a tab on my computer and I'm very excited to both start the year thinking about using it and then end the year actually doing so. Um, would you mind giving us a reading of that one? Yeah, I, I would not mind, that sounds good. All right, so this poem is called Ars Poetica. Migration is derived from the word migrate, which is a verb defined by Merriam-Webster as to move from one country, place, or locality to another. Plot twist, migration never ends. My parents moved from Jalisco, Mexico to Chicago in 1987. They were dislocated from Mexico by capitalism and they arrived in Chicago 
just in time to be dislocated by capitalism. Question, is migration possible if there is no other land to arrive in? My work to imagine. My family started migrating in 1987 and they never stopped. I was born mid-migration. I've made my home in that motion. Let me try again. I tried to become American, but America is toxic. I tried to become Mexican, but Mexico is toxic. My work to do more than reproduce the toxic stories I inherited and learned. In other words, just because it's art doesn't mean it's inherently nonviolent. My work is to write poems that make my people feel safe, seen, or otherwise loved. My work to make my enemies feel afraid, angry, or otherwise ignored. My people are my people. My enemies, capitalism. Susan Sontag says, victims are interested in representation of their own sufferings. Remix. Survivors are interested in the representation of their own survival. My work, survival. Question, why poems? Answer. Very nice. Thank you. One student who, I should preface this, responded to both poems. In fact, asked me if she would be permitted to because they both spoke to her enough that she felt it was essential that she do two very detailed analytical paragraphs to both. So, oh, wow. uh, uh, and so she had a lot to say and, and she's been peppered through a lot of this, I promise. Uh, but so the author writes of, uh, to bring a sense of safety, representation and love to our people, notes how survivors are interested in the representation of their own experiences. And then elsewhere, it says Olivares is a survivor who turns his stories into art, making those in the shadows finally feel seen. Is that hopefully how you want to be seen, or how do you respond to that? I mean, I, I think most of that is on point. I would maybe disagree with the last image of making those in the shadows feel seen, because in my experience, we have this idea that there's like the invisible masses, but there there is no invisible masses. Everyone is, you know, quite visible and excited and eager to talk. It's just a matter of like who we're paying attention to and who we're not. Um, but absolutely, um, you know, the I guess the seed for this poem is the quote from Susan Sontag. Victims are interested in representation of their own suffering, which is something that she wrote in this, you know, it's almost like a pamphlet. It's not very long, but it's like in a hundred page book. And it has to do uh, with like whether, like around the question of wartime photography and whether photos of violence are useful to combat violence. And, and it, you know, I was really moved by the work, but it's something that drew my attention because I had already begun to see you know, my students, when I worked as a teaching artist in Chicago, so high school students, you know, begin to understand that there was like a direct correlation between their stories of trauma and their value narratively. Uh, and I want to challenge that. And I want my writing to challenge that understanding. I don't think that, I don't think that representations of our suffering are one, always nonviolent, right? Like I think I, wanted to, I want to write and make sure that I'm not just further reproducing the images of violence, right? That 
that the poems are asking questions about about why violence happens and what the context is. I you know I, I guess I should get specific, right? I'm I'm a Mexican American poet. I and so on one level, everything I write, it doesn't matter if it's a love poem or not, is read through the lens of my identity, right? People, you know, I write a love poem and people were like, this is such a great poem about immigration. And I'm like, I, I didn't write about immigration, but it's because, <laughs> you know, that's one lens that people, you know, use to read my work. And then the other thing is that because I'm Mexican American, like the focus and the conversation around Mexican Americans is hyper-focused on the border in this particular moment of crossing. And yet that's such a small moment in all of our lives. Like it's such a small moment and it's also a never ending moment. You know what I mean? Like my dad at this point is a citizen but he still gets questioned all the time like about you know where he's from and is he undocumented or not? And so so yeah, so I wanted I want to write poems that that do more than just like I don't want my poems to offer up stories that you could turn on the television to Fox News and already hear those types of stories. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I don't want my poems just to like further echo the beliefs that 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 America already has about who we are and and what's important to us and what what we carry and all of that. So that that's kind of I'm sorry for rambling, but that that's absolutely why why I wrote the poem and why I included the remix to Susan Sontag, right? Survivors are interested in the representation of their own survival. I really believe that. Yeah, it's a, the survival is far more important than just like the the presence of victimhood. And, I, and there are a number of sources and places in America, American media especially, that will tell you like, oh, this is just victimhood mentality and that kind of thing. And it's very clearly the poem is about certainly more than that. Yeah, and I wonder about where that type of critique comes from this idea that there's a victimhood mentality um because i you know oftentimes people have real grievances to to contend with you know and real obstacles that they have to face um and so it's not victimhood mentality if you're like you know Actually if a snake a bites, yeah <laughs> if, if a snake bites you and you're like a snake bit bit me you, you know that doesn't mean that you have victimhood mentality it means that a snake <laughs> really bit you uh and we should be really concerned about the snake. Like, yes, why was exactly. that snake attacking you? <laughs> yeah, like, don't look at me. Like, there's a snake. Like, please. <laughs> at the same time, though, the thing that I always remember is like, if you only consumed a particular type of media, you might believe that like Mexicans are inherently sad people. You know what I mean? But like, we like growing up even in like cold Chicago, we, you know, when the summer came, we would have a party almost every weekend. Like it, it was quite joyful. There was so much joy and so much love and so much beauty. And so I, I always want to take care to remember that, that, you know, we are not reducible to these moments that kind of imprints us on the American imagination. And that actually the reason why we fight and take care of each other is because we're capable of so much beauty and laughter. Thank you. Uh, moving from that student's response, uh, another student was curious about all the questioning that's going on. In fact, a couple students were. A student says, uh, the author asked questions which they then answer to display that the author found these answers out the hard way, um, mm -hmm. which 
I think kind of begs the question, this is my question, not theirs, uh, as to why that last question is left unanswered. But a student responds, they anticipated that that's where I would go, and says the poet leaves an unanswered question at the end that I think was meant to be answered by survivors. My answer, poems can hold a million messages that speak even more truths. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's absolutely it. I mean, part of the reason I, I feel very lucky for the circumstances of this poem, part of the reason why the poem ends where it does is because this was actually not a poem at all when I first composed it, right? You mentioned that it's a prose poem. Um, this was a, I, I applied to a fellowship and this was the statement that I wrote, like the fellowship asks you to provide a 250 word statement about your poetics, right? And I, I had applied to the award previously and I, you know, I always tried to answer very earnestly, right? I tried to be like, well, you know, my poems are rooted in Calumet City, Illinois, which is where I was raised and whatever. And this time I was just like, look, I'm I'm not going to try to answer at least not in the way that is expected, right? Like, if the you know if the question under the question it, to like tell us about your poetics is why why do you write about the things you do or you know then then how can I answer that question in a more interesting way? But because it was something for a fellowship, you know, the, it ends on answer colon empty space because then the answer is the poem you know the writing sample that follows right mm -hmm. so it was part of a, like a larger work that i submitted but i i left it that way when i revised this into a poem because i just i i love kind of the the flex of like you know answer is is you know like you said right that poems have a million possibilities and allow for a million other stories beyond the ones that we kind of are bombarded with on a daily basis you know on the news or on twitter or whatever um and then when it when it comes to my own personal poetics hopefully that that my own work is kind of uh you know i don't that i don't need to explain it that hopefully my my work provides the answer it's interesting. So when you were describing that choice, before you mentioned that there was a collection of your work that followed, like the colon says, here is your answer, turn the page. Before you got there, I thought you were just leading up to the fact that this is just a wild flex. You're like, oh, you want to know why poetry? Well, I'm not going to answer that. Go away. <laughs> that's, that's a bold choice. <laughs> I mean, I also like that energy because I think, you know, one of the things that I love about questions is that oftentimes, I mean, I think this is true of everything, right? But there's like the surface level question, but then there are, are the questions underneath, like, you know, like a very common question is, where are you from, right? But if I answer that question and I say, well, you know, I was born in Chicago, I was raised in Calumet City, that's not satisfactory, right? There, then comes the follow-up question, where are you really from, right? And it's like, well, I'm really from Chicago. Like I can, <laughs> you know, but it, there's there's questions underneath the questions. And so uh, I'm always trying to find ways to, to kind of surface those harder questions. I don't know about harder questions, but those alternative questions. Yeah. Uh, and then related to the, the this choice of structure, uh, students were curious about that. Um, one student said that 
because uh, it is written as a paragraph, it provides this, this feeling that everything is so significant that it all needs to come out at once. It explodes out of you. There's no time to structure it in a traditional poetic way. Um, and another student thought that as a result of the prose structure, it almost makes the, the poem have a personal narrative quality to it. Yeah, I think both things are true. And I, you know, I think one of the things that I should pause and say for your students is that like, I think that a poem is a collaborative work of art, right? So there's what I write, but you know, the poem is not completed until someone reads it and, and fills in all these gaps and provides their own, you know, like I said, writes slides into that lowercase i and figures out what this means for themselves. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think both of those interpretations are true. For me, like, you know, again, part of it is circumstance, right? It was a fellowship statement. And so I wasn't, I didn't think this was a poem when I wrote it uh, until afterwards, but I kept it this way because I do like the pacing that feels kind of like an onslaught and uh, has like a little bit faster pace. And, you know, if you think about like line breaks being little breaths in poems, this one has less of those. Um, it's really only the punctuation maybe where you take those pauses. So I like the pacing for that. And, and I also think that, that it is, you know, personal narrative, right? Like the poem kind of tells my whole life story in a sense within those two lines of like, you know, my parents moved from Mexico to Chicago. They were dislocated from Mexico. They were dislocated from Chicago. You know what I mean? Like that's basically if I had to reduce my life down to three sentences that, you know, that those would be a candidate that might be one way I do that. So um, it definitely has this sense of personal narrative. Well, I want to say I really appreciate your time. I, I started this year with a podcast and at some point my, I have a, a really a mentor, a Terry DeBarger, another teacher from a local high school suggested I start attempting to contact poets and i was like that's stupid who's going to talk to a random high school teacher uh but this is phenomenal uh i feel fantastic about the conversation i love the things my students did with your work and I, i'm glad i was able to share so much with it with you so thank you for being here thank you for helping to wrap up the year for me yeah thank you so much for having me um and i want to give a big shout out to all of your students uh, and yeah, this is cool for me too. So, I mean, like I said, some of the questions that you asked and that your students asked, I hadn't been asked before. So thank you for that. Yeah, very welcome. Well, this is the last traditional episode of the academic year. Although a Q and A with Jose Olivares will follow next week, but there are no more poems for this episode. For this year, no more responses for students to write or seek or passphrases to look for or writing tasks to include, although I do hope they'll keep these in the back of their mind the next time they have to write. This podcast has been a passion project, often taking far too long to plan, produce, and publish. It has, without question, taken away time that I probably should have spent grading or planning instruction. But it has also been one of the most rewarding things I've done all year. I am immensely proud of the hard work my students have done and the growth they have shown. I hope that they have enjoyed 
poetry. If they haven't enjoyed poetry as a, a whole, as a genre, then at the very least, I hope that they have enjoyed some individual poems. I am not sure the format this podcast will take next year. It was born out of this expectation that without students participating in my traditional classroom format, I would need new ways to engage them. They have exceeded my expectations, as has this podcast. Thank you, students. I hope you'll consider listening next season should this project continue. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like next year's students to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 53 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent.